If you're the sort of person who has an adventurous streak, who likes waking up wherever you want, who's quietly happy the kids have finally left home, a person who likes dinettes and jockey wheels, we know you must love your caravan. And if you love it, you want to protect it. So make sure you cover it with Yui. Yui. You insured. Product issued by Yui Pty Ltd. Consult our caravan and trailer PDS to decide if this product is right for you. TMD and PDS available at yui.com.au. Welcome to Season 7 of the Art of Teaching podcast. I'm Matthew Green and I'm so grateful that you've joined me today. It's wonderful to know that there are teachers across the globe that are finding our episodes useful. So please take the time to subscribe, share the episodes and leave some feedback. Before we get started, I would like to acknowledge the Darawal speaking people who are the traditional custodians of the land on which I'm recording. I pay respects to the elders past and present of the Darawal nation and extend that respect to other Aboriginal people that are listening to this. I hope that you get as much out of our discussion as I did. Please enjoy. Today I have the great pleasure of sharing a conversation that I had with Dr. Catherine Garforth. Dr. Garforth has professional expertise in educational psychology and a personal understanding of the frustrations that children and adults with learning difficulties experience at home, school and work. In this wide-ranging and incredibly honest conversation, we talked about her experiences at school and why she thinks the best revenge is success. I hope that you get as much out of our discussion as I did. Please enjoy. Dr. Catherine Garforth, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for taking the time. Where are you phoning in from? Vancouver, British Columbia. I hear it's beautiful this time of year. Is it true? It is. Summer has finally arrived. It was a little bit late this year, yeah. Uh, but it's finally here. Yeah, fantastic. Quite possibly the most important uh, question of the interview, what's your coffee order when I can finally get over there and buy a coffee? <laughs> well, I don't drink coffee and I don't like hot drinks. <laughs> so. Okay. Um, what's your drink of choice? I make homemade fruit syrups. Okay. Uh, we've got a we've got a fairly good big garden, so I like doing uh, a black currant um, drink syrup with a little soda water. Okay, interesting. Uh, what is a book uh, that you have read that has made you uh, reconsider a few things in your life? It could be books. That's a difficult question. Just to whittle it down to one. Uh, I think the first one that really changed my life was If Horses Were Wishes. Okay, I haven't heard that one. Why was that one so uh, impacting to you? Um, Because I am severely dyslexic and I didn't read uh, fluent, well, not even fluently at that point, but by myself for pleasure until maybe grade six. And I would even call it pleasure, but that was the first book that I'm like, Oh, there's maybe a reason to do this aside from everybody telling me to. Uh, and it's because I, I have a passion for horses and I was just taken in by this story. Yeah. And then, you know, as I got older, it was, it was the horse stories and novels wow. that got me to read when I was such a reluctant reader. Wow um that's really that's really wonderful yeah and we will talk um uh, so much um about your work later on I mean it, it's just so so fascinating um about your amazing work with reading and I love that you found something that just engaged you and something that you were interested in and um another just a quick question um if you could have a dinner party with anybody uh, who would be there obviously your family uh, isn't included in the headcount, but who, who would you like to, to sit down and have a meal with? 
Albert Einstein. Okay. Just Albert? Um, you know, Isaac Newton would be nice. Um, you know, some of the, the great scientists of the yeah. past. Yeah. And, um, and why, um, why is Albert Einstein such an, in, like, I mean, obviously he's a phenomenal mind, but why is he your choice to sit down and have a conversation with? Well, just his profound quotes that really spoke out to me mm. growing up being, uh, being dyslexic. Like I know he's often cast as a dyslexic when yeah. really that's not the case. But when I was younger, I remember uh, there was a, a television station that had uh, like a TV ad or a bus stop ad with mm. Albert Einstein talking about how learning was difficult and whatever. Yeah. And that really spoke to me. And actually at the time um, we were doing a bit of advocacy work because they were going to take the bus system away from the, the school that I went to. And there's a picture of me beside the, beside the uh, ad. And then actually in high school, That's awesome. um, I had a line in one of the plays and it was E equals MC squared. And it was just like one of the last lines in the play. And I thought it was just so ironic um is that your only line in the in the play no no uh, <laughs> I, I had lots of other ones yeah but like I it was a play where I we had a small school so we played multiple roles Got it. yeah um and you know I had speeches and whatever but that was yeah I don't know just you know speaking to the dyslexics of the past yeah wow uh and the ones that that have really made it made a difference yeah, that that's that's really beautiful, and um, I think we all need those role models or those people that are like us um, to be able to relate to. And I think it's so wonderful to see just how much um, uh, how much hope um, someone like Albert Einstein gave to so many people, um, and a really, I think a real, really wonderful celebration of people's uniqueness and so I, I agree he would be a wonderful guest to sit down with um I played a seahorse once in a nativity play which I'm not sure where uh the ocean was in Nazareth but I think that was a case of me having the teacher having a few too many students um to fill the roles uh I and that wasn't a speaking role so uh yeah, never mind. I'm scarred from that experience. Um, uh, just wondering, uh, Catherine, what are you most grateful for uh, from your parents? Never giving up on me. Okay. Wow. Wow. That's really, that's really amazing. Um, Catherine, would you mind um, maybe just spending a few moments uh, talking about what your upbringing was like? I mean, you talked about um, obviously being uh, dyslexic and not um, finding a passion for reading till later on, but what, what was that, what was that experience like? What was your, what was your upbringing like? Well, upbringing versus schooling are very different, right? I yeah, have wonderful parents that did everything that they could with the knowledge that they had to yeah. do the best they could for me. Yeah. I was very fortunate to be in a family that had the time and the resources uh, to do what they could to help me. And my mom became an amazing advocate for myself. Uh, I have another sibling that has dyslexia yeah. and the dys greater dyslexia community. She actually became a branch president of the International Dyslexia Association. Wow. Uh, she did a huge fundraising work um, and uh, actually helped uh, get together a documentary about dyslexia. Um, and yeah. so I, I was very fortunate and she would do anything to try and understand why her child was having such a hard time at school. Wow. Um, and again, just believing in me uh, because I wasn't learning to read. Yeah. And, uh, you know, at first they were told that I was a late baby because my birthday is in October and in, in Canada, the academic year, the kids that turn, uh, the, the age starts in January of the yeah. academic year and then till December's are the, the young kids, but I was an October baby. So that's the same. You know, us over here, yeah. yeah. So I was, you know, a late baby and I'd catch up. 
and so they were just doing what they could with what they were told, you know, trusting the professionals. Uh, but then it got to the point where the schools had given up on me and, uh, said that I was a waste of their time that I'd never make it to high school or graduate and that they should just be okay with that. And they weren't. And and nor, nor should they be, nor should any parent, anybody except. And so what was, were you, um, were you aware that you learned things differently at school or did you like, no, I was stupid. Actually. That's, that's what it was (laughs) at that point. I was just stupid and a waste of time. Um, I was verbally and physically abused at school. Gosh. Um, and it was not a pleasant experience for me. Wow. Gosh, I'm, I'm, I'm so sorry that anybody, um, has to go through that or anybody um, has had to go through that because schools are such, I think, sacred spaces. And I think um, I couldn't imagine the pain that that would have caused either yourself uh, or um, obviously your parents. And, and what a, you're such a shiny example of what is, I think, what is possible uh, when you don't listen to the opinions of people. And we will definitely get into that more off, uh, um, uh, in a little while. But um, thank you so much for your vulnerability with that. Um, I know that is part of your incredible story and we will get into that in a moment. But um, was there a, um, a teacher that really made a difference in your life? Was there a teacher that decided not to listen to everybody else and really believed in you? Well, in grade three, there was a, a learning assistance teacher that first mentioned to my parents that she thought I might have a learning disability. Yeah. Uh, and I remember working one-on-one with that, that teacher. We had just moved uh, houses into a new school. Um, and, you know, I liked working with her. Um, uh, but I mean, the, the teacher that really stands out to me is Ms. Marg Levine, and she was my teacher for grade six and grade seven at a small independent school specializing in dyslexia. And there were 14 kids in the class, and she was amazing. Her passion for teaching and her love of her students. And she, the motto at that school was, if you can't learn the way we teach, we'll teach the way you learn. And she really went above and beyond. And the the crushed child that I was when I went to that school um, to within, I think it was within two or three days, I said to my mom, mom, I really hate to tell you this, but I think I'm going to like school. Uh, And, you know, I went from failing math to skipping a grade in math in a matter of months at that school and her taking the time to understand what I needed to succeed and showing me that I actually was intelligent and worth listening to and worth spending the time with. Gosh, I think everybody needs a, everybody needs and deserves and is entitled to a teacher like that. I think that's so wonderful. Have you ever uh, reached out and let her know that? I have actually. Uh, and we've, we've had some good chats and, you know, she's definitely the one that made the difference. And, you know, I, when you have big classes of, you know, 20, 30 students, it's really hard to do that. But when you just have 14 students with you and, uh, in most cases at that school, you would be with the same teacher for two years and really establishing that rapport and relationship really made the difference. Yeah, and and um, correct me if I'm if, if I'm wrong with this, but was that your year six teacher in the private school? Because I believe that you moved in around yes. so grade five to grade six, you changed schools, and and was that a completely different experience? Uh, going one hundred percent. Wow, going from a public school where I was bullied horribly, running home at lunch and after school crying. Gosh. To going to a school by bus with 54 students who are all dyslexic. Uh, I can't even explain the difference and realizing that I wasn't stupid. I wasn't the only one that struggled with reading. 
And actually, if you took the time to teach me how to do something, I could do it really well. Yeah. And what was that like when you found um, kind of your tribe and a group of students that um, approach reading or approach academics in the same way that you did? Was that, was that a wonderful experience to know that you weren't alone and that there were other people that had similar challenges to you? What was that experience like? It made things that much better. And, you know, I made friends that had dyslexia and couldn't read uh, and were learning to read the same way that I was. And, you know, they had their strengths and weaknesses and I had my strengths and weaknesses and that was okay. You know, we weren't judging each other for that. We were embracing it and realizing there, you know, different people had these gifts. I remember one of the, the kids on my bus he was the most amazing storyteller. Wow. And it was about a 45 minute bus ride to school there and back every day. And he would have a bus of 20 kids silent, hanging on to his every word just because of the, his amazing storytelling abilities. Wow. And that's when you think of people like Hans Christian Anderson, who was dyslexic. Yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, and the, these different gifts that they have. And uh, it was it was a safe place, and it really felt like home. Wow, wow, that's that's really beautiful, and like I think everybody deserves that, you know. And I think reading reading your work and um, your, your um, sort of incredible story is so inspiring because it just makes me wonder how many students are sitting in classrooms right now that don't feel like they belong, that they don't feel like they're understood or their their uniqueness is not celebrated. And I think the more people that share their stories um, as bravely as you're doing, the easier it gets for other students to say, hey, yeah, I this is me. This is how I am. And so it's it's really, really, really wonderful. And Catherine, what what do you think that speaks to about sort of the importance of how we personalize um, education for our students? I mean, why is that so important because I know in Australia we tend to um, we have some very uh, rigid structures or schools that are quite regulated and so on and so forth and um, yeah I wonder what that says in terms of how we how we personalize education and why that's so important. I think it's essential and I think we need to do a better job I mean I would love to be out of work and Mm -hmm. never hear uh, another story where a child isn't getting the support that they need. Yeah. Um, and as the parent of a dyslexic, yeah. I can tell you that things are better in some ways uh, when we're not having the same level of bullying and ignorance. Yeah. But there still is the struggle and the damage and the misunderstanding within schools. And the thought that technology is just going to solve the problem, like, oh, okay, well, they can have an iPad and an e-reader and, you know, they can use voice to text, text to speak or text to print. And that's just masking things. Um, When I was a student, my mom got me this tile that said success is the best revenge. That's wrong. And that's something that I have internalized. Um, And that's my driving force is trying to make sure that everything that I can possibly do, I try to do to make sure that no child ever has to go through what I went through as a student because it was horrendous and left lifelong scars. And I know it's made me who I am today. But no child should have to go through that. So what are some of the the misconceptions about um, dyslexia? What are some of the things that you think people maybe get wrong or misunderstand? Well, I think it goes back to, you know, the the very start, right? When when you see a student who's struggling or doesn't seem to be getting things, they just need to try harder, right? Uh, and, and the guilt that parents get for it. Well, you didn't read enough to them. And as a parent, I can promise you, I have read a lot to all of my children. Yeah. Uh, my children were unique in the fact that even as toddlers, they would sit and listen to me read to them for hours. They loved it. 
we were reading novels to them as bedtime stories from a young age. And, you know, well, like we were reading James of the Giant Peach. Yeah. Uh, and they just loved it and absorbed it. And I know that's unique. I know most kids at that age are not like that, but I can promise you, I read to my children and we've got thousands of books in our house. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, at all levels. So we need to get rid of that belief that it's just being read to more. Or it's something I mean, that parents have done wrong or exactly. they're not doing enough of. And that the children are lazy or not trying hard enough. Um, my supervisor wrote this book, um, Not Stupid, Not Lazy, Understanding Dyslexia and wow. Other Learning Disabilities. Yeah. And it, it really highlights some of those key things that kids with dyslexia or other learning disabilities, you know, hear all the time. You're not trying hard enough if you just tried harder when people don't realize that it takes 10 times, it can take 10 times the amount of work to get the same result as their peers. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Uh, the other thing that I remember was really frustrating for me was having a teacher assume because they knew a dyslexic or they'd had a dyslexic student before that what worked for that dyslexic would work for them yeah. or would work for me. And actually I had a teacher in grade 10 that was dyslexic and he decided that, you know, the way that I needed to do things was this way because it was, it was the thing that golden ticket for him. Perfect. Only it highlighted some of my areas of weakness. So it made things that much more difficult for me right. and it wasn't working. And one example that I always like to give is, so I, I have a sibling that has dyslexia and as sibling, we're not identical twins, but we're siblings. So we have a fair bit of similar genetic makeup and our dyslexia or I, our profile is different. Yes, there are some similarities, but only some of the things that worked for me work for them and vice versa. So when you have two siblings that are dyslexic, and not the same things work for them, then that's when you're like, okay, well, yeah. when you're talking about people that have no relationship and I, I've known twins that are dyslexic. Yeah. And again, you know, some of the things work, some of the things don't. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that's so important not to, not to generalize or to, or to stereotype mm -hmm. um, um, any children and any sort of, I think it's really important to realize that there are ranges of, of um, uh, additional needs that are required. And, and, and sort of what are your thoughts around the, sort of the language of um, sort of how we describe dyslexia. Are you comfortable with people saying that it's a, a disability? Um, are you, are you, are you, would you mind spending a few moments maybe unpacking that? Sure. I am pro-diagnosis when appropriate. I am fine mm -hmm. calling myself a dyslexic. I have always been fine calling myself dyslexic. Yeah. And I don't think is it is a negative thing. Mm -hmm. Getting that diagnosis changed my life because that's when I realized that I wasn't stupid. Yeah. Yeah. Right. There was a reason, a valid reason for me to be struggling. Yeah. And I had these strengths in like spatial relationship when I was in the, the 94th percentile and in math, I was up in the nineties, 90th percentiles, even though at school I was failing it because I couldn't do the reading associated with it. Yeah. I didn't know what the question was asking me. It's really important. I, I couldn't follow the lines. I couldn't fill in the graph because that's not how I could do things. That was testing my disability, not testing my ability. So I found that to be the very therapeutic. Yeah. And I had the, I was very fortunate that I got to work with um, Dr. Linda Siegel and I worked in her reading clinic. So I actually worked uh, at assessing individuals and yeah. Uh, doing the testing. And I, you know, I worked with people who were, you know, five all the way up to, I think one man was in his seventies wow. and just getting, you know, partway through the tests, some of the adults would break down crying because they'd realize not, not sad tears. They're happy tears. Yeah. They realized that there was a reason, yeah. there was a reason for this. Wow. And it's, 
you know, if someone has diabetes, that's a valid diagnosis, right? There's a mm-hmm. imbalance in their uh, endocrine system. You know, if someone has dyslexia and they have a phonological processing deficit, yeah. well, that's, that's what we need to help support. And as someone with dyslexia who has had a lot of intervention, yeah. I still have a phonological processing deficit, Yeah, you know, yeah. and I still, uh, the reason why I'm not in academia is because of my dyslexia. I cannot read material fast enough and comprehend it at a rate that you need to. Uh, As a professor, I cannot put out publications and journal articles at the speed that needs to be done because of my dyslexia. Mm -hmm. I am not a classroom teacher because of my dyslexia. I make spelling errors and I make grammatical errors. And I was told by the faculty of education uh, that I would not be a suitable teacher because it wouldn't be the proper modeling for the students. Tell me, like, there are so many questions I have. Um, <laughs> there are so many questions I have. Um, so, so tell me about, um, like, you, you received your doctorate. Um, yes. You are a doctor, PhD to be um, specific. What was that process like for you? Because, I mean, statistically, or you, you probably shouldn't be doing what you're doing. Um, like, I think, I, I, like, I, the whole notion of doing a PhD for me is absolutely terrifying, but yet you have shown that you are able to take um, something which some people perceive as a deficit and use it as a strength. So how on earth, tell me, yeah, tell me about that. How, how do you then begin that process of, um, of completing a, a doctorate? And what was that experience like for you? And what lessons do you think um, there are for other people that are in a similar situation to you that, that want to prove people wrong? Or does that come back to that tile that your mother gave you um, uh, about overcoming? Sorry, that was a terribly worded question. I just, I'm just in awe. So feel free to pick that apart and do whatever you would for like. Sure. I think I should maybe start at the beginning. So yeah. that school that I went to, Kenneth Gordon, uh, at my graduation, because it was only a primary school, so it ended at grade seven, yeah. uh, their prediction for my future was that I was going to be helping dyslexics around the world everywhere. They said this in primary school? Uh, when I was in grade seven, yeah. Yeah. I just wow. Grade seven. wow. Uh, and I have that written somewhere. I should really dig it out. Um, and need to get that on a t-shirt or something (laughs) mug uh, or bumper sticker. Yeah. Anyway, I get, I digress. Sorry. Okay. So my mom did a lot of advocacy work. She put on conferences. She talked with the big (laughs) names, but at the end, she was always just a parent. Yeah. And well, you're just a parent advocate. And I saw her frustration. So I knew I wanted to do more. And actually I started working with other dyslexics and their families when I was in high school, helping them understand their psychoeducational assessments, which is what we use to diagnose a specific learning disorder or uh, dyslexia, and then understanding how to advocate for their needs and get the appropriate accommodations and supports. Uh, so I did that and I I really wanted that, that to be like my life job. And I was like, well, you can't do that. No one's going to pay you to do that. (laughs) Uh, so I I went away to university, uh, for a degree in computer science because my mom's like, well, you should be a teacher. I'm like, well, I'm not going to be a teacher if I can't do what I want. So I did a degree of computer science and at university, uh, they recognized my advocacy abilities. And then in those days, it wasn't as uh, big of a thing, right? You weren't learning how to advocate for yourself at school in those early years. Uh, and they asked me to join the President's Advisory Committee at the university to advocate, to help the university learn how to meet the needs of students with disabilities. So then I was on that while I did my undergraduate program. Uh, and I really enjoyed it. Yeah. Wow. I, I was part of, um, you know, a community making change 
And then I, I was in a pu- couple of research uh, publications as a, um, a participant, right? They were, they're asking me how they could make things better. And I really liked that. And then oh, with one of the things we actually created a package to help university professors and employers understand individuals with uh, disabilities. My contribution was the learning disabilities, uh, but they also did vision, hearing, mobility, and social emotional. So can I ask, were you the subject of those papers or were you? Uh, I was one of the panelists. So I was one of the students that they were interviewing to get information about how professors should know or what they should know. So I actually ended up teaching this course to some university professors uh, when I was like, I don't know, must have been maybe 20. That's, I mean, that's intimidating. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, well, I've been doing advocacy for so long and I've been in two documentaries about learning disabilities. To me, I'd, I'd rather do that than write a paper yeah. any day of the week. Yeah. <laughs> Any day of the week. Uh, so that wasn't so bad. And then, uh, you know, I, I started doing tutoring on the side and really enjoying it. And one of the things as a student with dyslexia uh, was having these people that were trying to tutor me or help support me. Like, oh, I know what it's like. I'm like, no, you don't. Yeah. That Sorry. Be so patronizing for someone to say, yeah, I know what you're going through. It's like, no, you don't. Yeah. And then, so I found that, you know, when working with other dyslexics, they're like, oh yeah, you get it. Yeah. And that was a great buy-in to a lot of students who had that learned helplessness Yeah, and no one could work with because they just, they were done. And they're like, you know what, you don't, you don't know what it's like. And I can say, well, actually I do. And you know what, here's a documentary that I was in that takes it from me at that age. Yeah, wow. And you can see what I was going through. Yeah. Um, so then I did my bachelor's of education and I was hugely disappointed um, with the reading instruction and the language and literacy education program. And being someone that struggled to learn how to read, I was very upset that we weren't being taught how to teach children how to read. And when I brought up terms like phonological awareness and phonemic awareness, they're like, oh yeah, don't worry about that. Like, well, what about the kids that can't read? Oh, that's what the learning assistance teacher's for. They'll take care of that. I'm like, okay, well, you know what? Right now, all us new teachers are going to be the ones getting those jobs because no one wants them. And those are the only postings that are available. Yeah. Um, and then even, you know, the stuff on learning disabilities was very vague and not very... Um, not very useful, not really helping these teachers know how to make things better for their students or understand what was happening. So that got frustrating. And it was actually funny. I mean, I find it humorous. Uh, you know, you have those, the dyslexia, like you couldn't, only dyslexics can read this. And they were doing, a couple of my classmates were doing this example of what it was like to have dyslexia. And they're giving out these um, passages and, you know, someone was randomly going to be the dyslexic. I got the passage and I read it flawlessly. Like when it was my turn, I'm like, well, who, who has the one that, you know, that's hard to read? And I'm like, well, do you mean this one? And I'm like, well, how can you do that? How is it so easy? I'm like, just yes. Wow. So anyways. I mean, we've, um, all read, we've all been in professional learning where those passages have been handed out, but I've never thought yeah. of it um, naively from a, a, actually a position of someone who actually has dyslexia like we sort of assume we know what it's like but that that of course is ridiculous to assume that so uh yeah wow and that must be um there seems to sort of be a common bit of a common thread there by people with people thinking they know what you're going through and that thinking that people would they know what dyslexic students what their experience is like but I mean they really don't do that. So I think you bring well, such a unique perspective on that. It's them. the same thing with ADHD and it's the same thing with autism. You don't really under that understand those perspectives unless you've experienced them or been very, very close to someone who has. Yeah, wow. Wow. Um, so during my master's program, I, I did a I was able to work with Dr. Linda Siegel, and that was an amazing experience. And I'm very thankful every day for that. Yeah. Um, and I worked in her reading clinic. So I learned how to do some of the assessment wow. pieces. 
and I found that fascinating and it really helped me hone in on my skill for intervention. Yeah. Wow. Uh, because not only could I understand what the student was going through, it helped me give me that deeper understanding of why. Wow. Right. And what we could do to support it. Yeah. Um, and then I was done my master's and like, well, what else do you do? You do PhD, right? (laughs) So, um, I did a PhD. Why not? It was a cool thing to do, I guess. Um, and I guess that's not true. I wanted to have the letters behind my name saying that I knew what I was talking about and I wasn't just some dyslexic. Right. So I am someone with severe dyslexia, but I also have a PhD in specific learning disabilities. So do you, um, uh, and, and sorry, I, I want to be sensitive with how I ask this question. So if I, if I say it wrong, please feel free not to answer. Are you, um, are, are you proud of your dyslexia? Um, are you, um, gl- so maybe it's more appropriate for me to say, are you glad that it's a part of your life? I wouldn't know who I am if I didn't have dyslexia. Yeah. I'm sorry. That I would no means meant to be disrespectful. No, no. Because no, don't worry about it. It's such an integral. It's it's who, who I are. am, yeah. and I actually remember. So I went to school in a rural area where there were a lot of missionaries coming around trying to convert you into this religion or that religion. Yeah. And one of the ways that I got them to leave me alone was I'd ask them, "So when I die and go to heaven, will I have dyslexia?" And then it was like, oh, no, you're going to be in your purest form. You know, you're not going to have any problems. I'm like, well, then I don't want to go there. Yeah. I'm dyslexic. It's who I am. It's how I see the world. And it's how I'm making a difference. Yeah. I would never wish it on anyone else. Yeah. I wish that my child didn't have to go through the struggles that they're going through. And I remember I was talking to a class when I was pregnant with my eldest. And they said, would you ever want? wish that your child had dyslexia and at the time I'm like oh I don't know like it's you learn things differently and you have the different talents but I can tell you now I wish yeah they never had to suffer the way that they've had to yeah and that's with a parent that knows what what's happening yeah and and I I I can't even begin to imagine like I said what what that is like um for yourself but also as a parent of student uh, of Mm -hmm. a a wonderful child that um, is going through that as well, I think. But it does seem like for so much of history, we have tried to fix things or we've perceived, I guess, learning difficulties in some ways as a, as a deficit. But I think you're, um, you're amazing. You're an amazing example of, of what's possible and how we can actually use uh, our uniqueness to our ability. Uh, And I think of some of the most brilliant, um, most brilliant minds um, that have really changed the course of history have seen the world in a slightly different way than most people have. And I, and I, I wonder how we go about, I guess, changing that discussion away from trying to fix something to actually being able to work with people's uniqueness. I mean, what, what are your thoughts? What are your thoughts on that about how we can actually celebrate difference a little bit more in education? Well, I have lots of thoughts on that, but I, I think there's one, one element yeah. uh, of my story that, that may speak loudly here. And that was, so after I finished my time at this school specializing in learning disabilities at grade seven, I, I needed to get another psychoeducational assessment yeah. uh, to see where things were. And the psychologist said, oh, great news, you're cured. And I'm like, um, excuse me? No, I'm not. I'm not cured. Uh, I, I still have a hard time. No, but you're cured. You don't need to worry about it. And that was probably one of the most, aside from all, everything that I dealt with beforehand, that was one of the most traumatic experiences of my life because I was terrified. I wouldn't get the support that I needed. And I was terrified that I would have to go back, um, to public school. Wow. And that was a very, very difficult time for me. And it was so hard for me to hear those words because I knew I wasn't. It, it's so diff- it, it, It's so tricky because I don't think like, and I could be wrong, but it doesn't seem like, sorry, it seems like that is 
wasn't necessarily malice in this person's voice. No, no. They were trying to say, well, you've worked so hard. You've come so far. And it's like, but that doesn't mean I'm not dyslexic. Yeah, yeah. And and can I um, can I just ask? I mean, I, I do want to. I'm getting so absorbed in this discussion, and there are so many questions I I, I want to ask you. But I I do want to be respectful of your time. But we can um, we can go another uh, hour. I'm fine. Tell me a little bit about your work with um, language acquisition for non English speaking students, and if there are any I guess parallels between that and how we teach students how to read and how to engage in literature because. I found I, I just found that so interesting. My um, speciality is working with students from non-English speaking backgrounds, and so when I read that, I felt like a light bulb had gone off. So tell me a little bit about that. Phonological awareness. End okay, story. love that. Okay, <laughs> and are there some? Are there just some good practices that help people, regardless of ability, regardless of a language background, regardless of approaches, that really help students to engage in reading? Obviously, phonological awareness is one of them. Um, but what are some of the parallels that you see um, between those things? Okay, so in my PhD dissertation, I looked at English language learners who had tiny, a Chinese language as their first language and came to kindergarten with little or no exposure to English. Uh, and then I looked at their ability to read in the the Chinese language, whether they could read um, simplified or traditional characters uh, and their ability to speak in the language uh, at grades, I think it was two, three, and four. And then, so I I did a, a few measures in Cantonese and Mandarin based on what language they had as their first language. Yeah. Uh, and then looking at their abilities in English. Right. And they're the students that gained English very, very quickly. Because all of these students were fluent English speakers by the time that I was working with them. Yeah. But there were the ones that really kept up on the Chinese school and were still fluent in Chinese. And they're the ones that lost it. Um, the thing that really came about in the research that I was doing was looking at the errors these students were making in their reading and in their spelling and looking at uh, the the phonological awareness and the phonemic awareness deficits that we were seeing Yeah, uh, in their their formalized scoring and then comparing it to their ability to, you know, with spelling and reading, And the the way that you read Chinese is different. You use the same areas of your brain. It's the same process, but you're looking at the the word and the syllable level instead of the phoneme level. Got it. Yeah. Right? So they don't necessarily have the same attention to the phoneme. And you would see that. And then the other thing, when we're looking or working with students that have English as an additional language is understanding the phonemes in their first language or first languages and how they differ from English mm. because there's something called allophones and that's when a sound, it, it means the same thing. So you don't really notice the difference, right? So, and mm, the sound that's made by the TH are mm. allophones in English. Um, in I, I think it's both, Cantonese and Mandarin, the O and the er are allophones. So they're the same. And unless we train the individual's ear to hear the difference, they're going to struggle with that. Mm -hmm. Uh, Wow. So that's where that phonological awareness and the phonemic awareness training can really help support the students that have English as an additional language. And then we can see it in their spelling. Mm um yeah and yeah, yeah I, I know there's a lot of stuff about you know phonological awareness and phonemic awareness and overdone or too much or this that and the other thing but I think it's all about how you look at it and yeah. uh what you're doing with information from it yeah absolutely fascinating and for those people uh that are not aware 
what is the difference between phonemic awareness and phonological awareness and why are these things so important when it comes to teaching students um, how to engage in reading? Okay, well, phonology has to do with the sound system of a language, right? And there are different levels of phonological awareness. There is the word level awareness, and that's hearing the difference or like knowing how many words are being spoken. Mm -hmm. There is the syllable awareness where you can count the syllables and you can hear the syllables. There is onset rhyme awareness where you can split a syllable into its first consonant sound if it exists and then break that apart from the vowel and any final consonant sounds. Now that's different from linguistics where we have the onset rhyme and coda where the onset is the same. The rhyme just deals with the vowel and that's R-I-M-E, not R-H-Y-M. Is that right? No, whatever. You know what I mean? I know what you mean, yeah. R-I-M-E, there we go. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. Hang on, I don't know, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and then the coda is the final consonant sound. Yeah. Uh, then there's rhyming words like fun and sun. Mm-hmm. And then the phoneme level is the individual speech sound within the language. In the English language, depending on dialect, there are 44 phonemes. And, and the problem with that is there's only 26 alphabetic letters in our uh, Latin or Roman alphabet that we use to represent our spoken sound. Yeah. So the other thing when it comes, so the phonological awareness has to do with awareness of all things. And if you can comprehend spoken language, you have an unconscious level of phonological awareness, right? You can listen to words, you can understand what they mean, you can speak into them. Toddlers are really good about elongating words with not even thinking about it and breaking words into syllables without even thinking about it. But as soon as we start teaching literacy skills, we want to bring that unconscious awareness to conscious awareness because they actually have to think about it because we're trying to encode or assign letters to the words. Another reason why phonological is so important, especially when we're working with students that have English as an additional language English is a morphophonemic language, and I'll get into that in a minute, but that means that our words are written at the phoneme level, right? So our words are written based on individual speech sounds. Now, other languages, uh, their transcription for their language could be whole word or in syllables, Mm -hmm. and that's going to impact how the individual processes the spoken word when they're reading it and printing it. And for something like Hebrew, you can write it without vowels. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And English vowels are extremely important and some of the most problematic areas. Yeah. Now English is a morphophonemic language. That means that our words spelling comes from morphemes and phonemes Morphemes are larger units of speech that carry meaning. And those are prefixes, suffixes, roots, bases, they're affixes. There are things like pre, meaning before. And our spelling system um, defaults to morphology before it does to the phonemic spelling of the word. So that's why we have all of these words that don't necessarily sound the way that they're spelt. There's also an additional factor that doesn't work with the morphophonemic. It's the etymological history of the word. So where that word comes from, because English is taken from so many different languages, uh, we use the spelling systems where there's words historically come from to impact our spelling. And when we understand that, it makes things make so much more sense. And honestly, like right now in front of me, I've got a book called The ABCs and All Their Tricks. Yeah. I've got SL is for sleaze, but SN is for sneeze, understanding consonant clusters. And I've got unlocking literacy, effective decoding and spelling instruction. So these are all books that focus on that morphophonemic relationship yeah. of the English yeah. language. 
and that's some serious for those people that obviously we're recording audio here but that you got some serious tabs sticking out of that book so i can tell it's been very <laughs> well so, so is it true, uh, Catherine, that um, is, is English a particularly difficult language? I mean, you talked a little bit about etymology there and also the, the different um, uh, phonemes and so on and so forth. Is it difficult or is it the way, that, do we need to change the way that we are teaching students to engage in English or a little bit of both? We, it is a difficult language. I'm not going to say it's an easy language. There are much more transparent languages. Yeah. English has a deep orthography. Um, because not only are those, there are those 44 phonemes, but there are over 200 ways to represent those four phonemes. So just learning phonics isn't enough for us to yeah. sound out, okay, k, okay, that's a K. We yeah. also need to learn the rules around the orthography or the spelling patterns yeah. of the language. Yeah. And once we learn those, it's a lot easier. And there's mm. another book called Uncovering the Logic of English. It's like a four, four and a half hour read according to um audible or um what's that yeah kindle or something yeah. yeah um and honestly i think every teacher should read that book because the way that the vast majority of us have been taught that are currently teachers in the education system yeah. is based on a balanced literacy or whole language approach to reading yeah. so we don't know those rules yeah uh, and patterns and that's really doing a disservice. So it's requiring that teachers go on that steep learning curve to understand it. Mm. So they can use it in their classroom. And honestly, like, so this is, this is what I needed to learn how to read. Yeah. So this is what I got at those schools that specialized in learning disabilities. Yeah. Uh, my husband is not dyslexic. And I know I've been working with our kids talking about spelling and he's like, Oh, I didn't realize that. Like, why didn't they tell me that? That would have like made it's just easier. Practice, yeah. yeah. <laughs> exactly. So the good news is we do know a lot about best practices for teaching reading. It's just kind of stuck in the pipe, yeah. getting from understanding how to do it conceptually and theoretically yeah. to getting it into the classroom. And that's where my passion is really strong at the moment. And I'm doing everything I can to get the information out there to teachers so that they can make that difference. And, you know, I've been speaking with teachers a long time now. Mm -hmm. uh, and even, you know, just that first dabble into this stuff can make a huge change in your classroom and it's worth the effort. And I'll make sure, um, if you don't mind, that I grab your reading list to put in the show notes so that teachers can yeah. access to access to these resources or any books that you think are must reads for educators because there's so many that you're holding up there and showing and I'm going to write them down and so if that's okay I might grab from you at some point of course a bit of a reading yeah lesson. well and the thing is so I mean I I have a company called Garforth Education mm -hmm. and in that I'm trying to help educators understand best practices Mm -hmm. And there are so many amazing books out there that are great reads, but I had, they're not ones that I'd recommend to be that first book into learning that stuff because yeah. I mean, the terminology and everything that it's talking about is just like, whoa, that's an overload, yeah. right? I'm, I'm not there yet. So it's all about finding yeah. that basic entry into understanding what this is all about so that you can decide where to take your next steps to go further. I think that's so important. And I, um, I think I missed or that part of the schooling was admitted from my education where they actually talked about the mechanics of the English language and spelling and how to grammar and all of that stuff. And so I think for anybody, it's a really good um, sometimes it's a first read, sometimes it's a refresher, but I think understanding the reason why we do the things we do in the English language is, is super important because I know when I first started teaching in kindergarten, it was terrifying because I didn't know how to explain some of these rules to five-year-olds. I didn't know what I was doing. And so to get some of those, like I said, some of that reading list from you would be um, would be wonderful. And um, uh, Catherine, I did just want to um, ask you uh, about your amazing organization, Right to Read. I know we've kind of talked a little bit right. about 
the yeah. right to read initiative. Yeah, sorry, the right to read initiative. And what do you hope to what do you hope to achieve with this? It's probably a little self-explanatory considering your passion for reading, but what do you hope to achieve with this? Okay, so in February of this year, 2022, the Ontario Human Rights Commission uh, released a report called the Right to Read Inquiry. And it was based on a couple of years of looking at students' right to read. And this was put on initially looking at dyslexic students who were not getting access to the education that they needed. And it was actually based off a case uh, that they used as an example saying, this isn't acceptable with a kid that I went to school with uh, at the school specializing in learning disabilities. Um, And this report is amazing. Yes, there's room for improvement, but it's not one that's specific to Ontario, specific to Canada, specific to North America. The recommendations, there are 157 recommendations in this document. And it's only about five or six pages just looking at the appendix with the recommendations. And it takes you step by step what you have to do to go from where the schools are at now that are still, you know, entrenched in that balanced literacy, whole language approach to teaching, reading, using programs like reading recovery and Fontes and Pinnell to moving towards one that's associated or aligned with structured literacy, the science of reading. So the right to read initiative started as just trying to get that information out there. Yeah. And I wanted to have it separate from Garforth education because in the right to read initiative, the only time I mentioned Garforth education is when I introduce myself. If I remember, hi, my name is Dr. Catherine Garforth from Garforth education. That's it. Yeah. Everything else with the right to read initiative is all about the teachers, the administrators, the researchers who are in the fields doing this work, trying to make it better for the students. Yeah and giving them access to the information. So it has kind of snowballed. Um, So I started doing these interviews, talking about the various recommendations and what people were doing uh, on March 4th. And today is July 7th. And if you give me a second, I can tell you how many interviews I've done for it. Um, I think it's close to 65. Uh, and honestly, in some days I'm doing, um, like today I've done three. Um, let's see, let's scroll down here. As of today, I have done, uh, 72 interviews. Gosh. Sort of. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and it's all about helping teachers understand best practices and also understand that they're not alone. Um, I'm not the only one that found that my teacher education program didn't give me the skills that I needed to teach students how to read. It's actually a very common feeling. And the Ontario Human Rights Read Commission actually talks about teacher education programs and better preparations uh, for pre-service teachers. Um, so I've, you know, I've done an open call. Any teacher that wants to t- talk to me, I'll talk to them. I want to hear your story, hear what you're doing and make it so that other teachers can understand they're not alone in this change. Yes, it's scary. Yes, there's so much to do, so much to learn, but it's possible. Yeah. Everything is possible, right? Yeah. Uh, and giving them those little success stories and realizing, you know, teachers that are just one year into this, what are they doing? Teachers that are two years into this, teachers that were trained and did reading recovery for years who have shifted, you know, teachers that have been whole language teachers, trained in whole language, what made them question, you know, why did they look further? Why did they decide to change their practice after 40 years of teaching? Mm. Yeah. And I think there are certain things that are just good practice. I mean, we've talked about these things um, a little bit in this discussion today. Um, And I think it's really important not to get kind of attached to a process or a program or to adopt a theory without actually knowing the mechanics and the good practice behind why we and how we teach people to read and not being too, um, uh, 
uh, committed to something that maybe isn't working as well as it could and probably doing damage uh, to some of our readers as well. Um, Dr. Catherine Garforth, I just want to ask you a couple of questions just as we wrap up. Um, and one of them, uh, sorry, is Australian teachers are currently on a well-earned break. Uh, we'll be returning to our classrooms in a week or so. Um, what advice uh, would you give uh, teachers that are returning to the, the classroom about how to engage with their students that maybe have additional learning needs or additional challenges? How can we do a better job of that? Taking the time to get them to know them as a person yeah. and find that thing that they love and their passion and learn something about it. Yeah. Because having that teacher that has some shared common interest or willing to talk to you about your favorite thing mm -hmm. gets that buy-in yeah, and makes it so that you want to work that little bit more and also help create that growth mindset. Yeah. Right. Not that fixed mindset that makes a huge difference and having students realize that I mean that that motto that the school had if you can't learn the way we teach we'll teach the way you learn I think should be on the front of every school door um but looking at ways that you can put that to heart and yes it does mean extra work on your part but there are great communities and resources out there that are wanting to help you learn and mm. get there that's so that's so important and um I think for me, um, being a parent as well um, has really, it's yes. really transformed and changed the way that I interact with the people, in, with the students in my class. I think I've always been um, kind and considerate and, 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 and all of that kind of stuff with my students, but um, it's just really, it's just really um, reminded me of the importance of personalization taking the time to get to know my students, to caring for them. Because I think even, I think of some of the most challenging students that I've had in my class over the years, um, they're also someone's most precious thing. And it's something that, um, yeah. And so for me, I think just remembering that these are little humans that are trying to work out the world. We need to celebrate their differences. We need to uh, champion them. And, and like I said, if they're not learning the way that we teach, we need to change the way that we are teaching because it is our responsibility well I, I know reading is my passion but another thing that I feel that all teachers need to spend the time understanding is executive functioning mm. because there are so many times where executive functioning weakness impacts behavior and we're setting these kids up for failure yeah before we even start yeah instruction yeah. Uh, and especially when we're working in those primary years, recognizing yeah. that this is when kids just start developing yeah. those, those executive functioning skills. And if there is any form of neurodiversity in the equation, they could easily be between three and five years delayed in those. So you're working with students that have preschool level executive functioning skills. Gosh, gosh. And it also says so much, I think, about... Um, about having high expectations for our for our kids um, and not writing them off because they maybe see the world differently. Or um, mm. I think it's, it's it's really important because kids tend to um, live up to the expectations that you have for them. Um, and I, I can't imagine how hard it would have been to go through what you went through in school and what countless other students did. But I'm also mm. so grateful that you did because you get to really change the way that we approach these challenges moving forward and you and I think as well it's such an incredible um uh display of your tenacity and determination and your refusal to uh to listen and potentially your stubbornness um just okay. to, and that's not a bad thing and, and I I'm so grateful uh, like I said for your work and and for the um for the example that you are to so many. And, and on that um, uh, my final question, um, uh, Catherine, what do you want your legacy to be um, in this space? What do you perceive as success? Success is when we have universal screening and we have that 95% rate of students reading by the end of grade one and still having it at the end of grade three. 
yes, there are going to be students that need that additional support uh, and that's okay. But it means having that, we are going to have the resources and the ability to really focus on those students that need it. This isn't just going to help their academic outcomes. It's going to help their life outcomes. So much research has been done in prisons, looking at mental health issues Mm. and suicides that can have roots back to reading problems. Gosh. And that's not fair. No, it's not fair. Um, Well, I think you are uh, well on your way um, to seeing that legacy come to fruition. Um, And I am hugely like I said, hugely grateful um, for your work and that you would take the time to talk to me today uh, all the way over uh, in Canada. And I'll uh, put all of uh, the show notes and where people can find out more about you uh, in the, um, sorry, in the show notes of the podcast so people can get in touch. But um, thank you, thank you, thank you for your time. And you are a shining example of of what is possible uh, when we um, don't listen to people's opinions of us. So thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today. You're welcome. Take care. Thank you for taking the time to listen to the Art of Teaching podcast today. I hope that you, like me, got some valuable insights out of our discussions. For show notes, please visit theartofteachingpodcast.com. And I've also created a private Facebook group where we can continue the discussion there. The link will be in the show notes. Thanks again for listening and can't wait to see you for next week's episode.